My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. chamber of mystic linguist saviors spellbent on decoding the mind danger freeing the sheep from the cybernetic manger the collective unpuzzling piecing together the synthetic phonetic comedics a deceptive collective of syllables and parables draining depleting us arming us till we're tillable and shareable it's terrible unbearable cultural repression leaving us unrepairable Stepping up to the podium is none other than Slick Dissident here via telekinesis to deliver his thesis with me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with returning champion Slick Dissident. The Berserkers would go to war side by side with the with the wolves, the werewolves. So werewolves and berserkers are like Norse allies in battle. It's so it was just really fascinating that sometimes you just like throw an idea out, wouldn't that be interesting? But then it's a day later that you do the research and you're like, wow, we were really hitting something hard. And that has flown under so many people's radar. So then I find out that in the in the zodiac, under the sign of Libra, there is a minor decan called the Lupus, and Lupus is just a minor constellation, and it's it's a wolf. It's the wolf constellation. And I said, isn't that fascinating? And if you look up the minor decans on a graphic, that the Lupus constellation has this correspondence to Gemini, the twins. And so it'll have a little Gemini, the two I symbols, you know, Roman numeral two underneath it. And so now I realize that that correspondence to Gemini in this wolf constellation is revealing the foundation of Rome.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. You know who I am, and I'm here with a highly esteemed returning guest. If he hasn't been on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy show proper, he's been on one of my shows before. I've joined him on numerous group get-together podcasts, and it's a true honor to have him here to discuss what we're going to be discussing today. His name is Slick Dissonant. Those who are close to him call him Gabe. And I'm happy to call him a friend. He's always dropping some knowledge in the live chat, dropping some knowledge in the Telegram chat. So without further ado, Slick Dissident, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. How are you, friend? Wonderful, Mark. It's a joy to be here, brother. Thank you so much for the invite. This is exciting. Yeah, it's long overdue. I've kept my eye on what you've been working on, and it's always fascinating. And I'd like to spend some time to go through it all. But before we get to that, as I mentioned in our pre-interview there, I want to know a little bit more about you. When did this start for you? Did you pick up the the sort of synchro thread through, you know, the podcast community? Were you interested in this stuff from a very young age? Like, wh- when did you become, you know, a slick dissident researching all of these amazing things? Because you have quite a niche that you've carved for yourself. <laughs> Yeah, well, I have had a very mystical worldview from a very young age. When I was about 15 years old, I had a very accomplished aunt who is a, a Wiccan priestess, and she is she goes by the name Saga, and so her specialty is storytelling. And she had a bookstore, and she invited me to work there for a summer, and I got into that bookstore, and my horizons just opened up to whole new perspectives, and got into the healing arts, you know, through that bookstore, and learned about the auric field and the unseen world, and ever since then, I've just kind of held on to the knowledge that there is way more than what most people commonly acknowledge in in this place in this realm that we're in. So from there, I also have been a lifelong martial artist. So went off to school, to college at Ball State University on the 40th parallel. And started to, I had been into like Taekwondo and mixed martial arts as a youth, but it was in college that I met this beautiful goddess uh, who was a star, which is Brazilian dance fighting. Rich Afro-Brazilian ritualistic dance fighting, to be more precise, and she she invited me into her into her circles to take a few classes, and I fell in love with her, and I fell in love with the art. It is quite fascinating. It's anybody who's never heard of it. It's spelled C A P O E I R A, and it is really something to marvel at. It is very unique. It has you know language, music mythology, tradition, ritual, and a whole lot of humility, a whole lot of humility. So yeah, that was kind of set my path for, I guess, the rest of my life. I still consider myself a couple of these. I don't practice much anymore, but I still sing to lift my spirits and change the vibe when I need to, you know, but you'll notice if anybody, there is a lot of inversions, a lot of, you know, salts and turning and acrobatics involved. So I do believe that a lot of my mystical worldview was actually enhanced by broadening my imagination of what is physically possible. And so I do play with language quite a bit. 
And I think that because the language in Weta is generally Portuguese with a lot of Afro-Brazilian flair. And so because I have a bit of experience in those realms, I'm able to bring them to bear on a lot of the linguistical ciphers that I offer over on my channel. And so I went from Ball State following the 40th parallel exactly. I went out to Colorado, to Boulder, Colorado. And I spent about 18 years out there doing a capoeira and reaching out to many communities. It was very capoeira rich. There were, you know, almost a class every week if you were really, if you really wanted to go that bad. I also had a long lost brother out there, a half brother. And so that was kind of cool. It's like meeting the, my other half that I never knew I had. And so, yeah, went out to Colorado, did lots of capoeira. Then the lockdowns came and things got really hairy. And I had to make, cut some ties and make some changes in my life. And uh, now I'm back in Indiana. and I'm just kind of helping my, fa my family get their things together and adjust as their lives change. Here in the next year or so, I'm probably heading back to Colorado again. I got a little girl out there who she and I need to be together. We miss each other a lot. So that's, uh, that's my life in a nutshell. Right on. Thank you for uh, yeah, giving us the, the 101 on Slick. And, and some of that I do remember you telling me about. I remember you telling me about the bookstore and your aunt saga. Very fascinating stuff. And you, you have a, a half-brother by blood, you're saying. You met your half-brother brother by blood for the first time out there? Wow. Yes, he, uh, we share the same father. And uh, it's really fascinating because, you know, we were, I think, 24 when we met. And it just, we have the same mannerisms. We both talk with our hands a lot. We both touch the other person when we communicate a lot. We're very hands-on dudes. We look like each other. And, it, and we were, I, I think we might have hung out a couple times as very young children. But we went 24 years without knowing each other. And then it's like looking in the mirror when we came together. Wow. And so, you know, that whole thing about twins and, the, you know, the mystical connection and the similarities of twins, even though they're separate from each other, it is very real. It is, I can confirm there is something really fascinating about it. And then the other thing that is just great is uh, he is quite an accomplished swing dancer. And swing dance and capoeira are very closely related. In fact, my capoeira master's master went to New York, to Harlem, and infused capoeira into swing dance a very long time ago. And so the roots of his dance of choice and the roots of my dance actually meet in New York in a really cool way. And we both, so yeah, I always would come to his swing events and try to learn some moves. And he would come to my Capoeira classes and try to learn some moves. So, yeah, we learned a lot from each other. And in a fun way, I kind of think of him as my twin. Mm. We're uh, six months apart. So we are almost like twins. We're like rising signs to each other, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And now I sort of get the the slick moniker. You're a slick dancer. And that <laughs> slick dance move might turn into a head kick if you're not careful. <laughs> Very, you cool. Very cool. Very yeah, cool. So... Buddy. I know a little bit about Capoeira. Actually, sort of unrelated tangent. I there's this video game that I used to play online. It was like Street Fighter, but only Capoeira characters and moves. So it's all Capoeira martial art fight like game. And I would just 
it was free online. I would just play it like during school all the time because it was just, you know, like Street Fighter, like the arcade kind of version. And that was around the same age that I became fascinated with martial arts and I went on to become a martial artist. And so I have a, a small little connection to that fighting art and and i've always been fascinated by it you know the the concept of like break dancing infused with a martial arts because especially that you just pointed out the swing harlem connection i i can imagine some of that stayed and became what then became break dancing right i mean because break dancing came from new york city as well so at least i i think (laughs) Yep, totally. That's cool. That's really cool. I didn't know there was an entire game dedicated mm. to Capoeira. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'll, I mean, it might we might be past that generation on the internet, but I might be able to find it on the Wayback Machine. I'll send it to you. It's it's worth a play. It's worth a play. It's a fun game. So, so this is sort of the the foundation we're trying to lay here for the audience, and and I will say. It makes more sense knowing that you're trained in this very flexible martial arts because your wordplay is very flexible. You know, like you you can take meaning from things that are seemingly not there. I mean, and through no slight to, to what you're doing, because I think they are there. But to the average perspective, you wouldn't notice that kind of stuff. But once you tune your focus to notice those things, are you seeing it everywhere? I mean, what is that? What was that like? Like, when did you start playing around with the meaning of words and the spelling of words? And like, is there an art to it? Yes. Well, that is a really great question. Well, for one, my name, Gabriel, it means, you know, I have the gift of gab. I am a give a giver of gab. <laughs> so I do, I can be very loquacious and long-winded <laughs> if I'm not careful. When, when I was a kid, I had a, uh, uh, older cousin by about a year and he went he's first i think he started with pig latin and he started just speaking pig latin to everybody even though nobody knew what he was saying and it just rubbed me the wrong way it was so obnoxious and annoying so in about the, a month's span of time i started to learn pig latin which is you know real simple basic language play and then by the time i caught up with him he was already taking german in in high school so he was ahead of me on a whole nother language by the time i caught up with him and i had to wait till i got to high school to start taking german so i could start to then it just seemed like no matter what i did he was always like one year ahead of me in his linguistical development and so i just i think i appreciate that he was always just leading me to seek out the next level of understanding you know because i just i I find it almost playful in that, you know, the world is speaking just above our heads, just above our ability to hear. And if, you know, if you open yourself and you're receptive enough, there is way more to glean from from language and from the vehicle that is English. I call it angelese. I call English angelese because there is a lot of, you know, whispers from the ancestors in our language. And with enough historical context, you can kind of fill in some blanks and get a broader context to what's going on, what's mm. being said. Yeah, and I don't think that's that much of a stretch, at least that last one about angels and English. I mean, Anglo-Saxon, they share the same 
sort of etymological prefix there. And, and you see that word prefix being used in a variety of words that if we all, if we, you know, put paired all those words together, there's sort of a theme, right? And I'm wondering if you, you're starting to notice that, like where words will use similar letters and those, you know, combinations of letters will sort of denote maybe like an archetype of the word. Have you started to, to notice that? Absolutely, yes, very much so. In the standard scribe's desk used to have three dictionaries on it. And one would be Greek, translated into Hebrew and Latin. The other would be Hebrew, translated into Greek and Latin. And one would be Latin, translated into Hebrew and Greek. And you'll often see in art, a scholar will have three books stacked up on his table. And oftentimes there's like the bigger book on the bottom then the medium book and the littler book on top. They'll often have that three-tiered kind of value to it. And that is a really lovely way of articulating the Tower of Babel. And the old scribes would have, have comprehension of those three cultures, which are, in fact, chronological. You know, Greek is the foundation. And then there was Hebrew, which technically died, died out for a long time and was resurrected right around Sir Francis Bacon's day when English became the next, the next language birthed out. You could almost think of English as if those three books were Alexandrian Lighthouse, which are often depicted as three cubes stacked with the, the light on top. English would be the light on top that sees from the, with the furthest perspectives of the terrain of history. And so that's what I think about oftentimes. And if, as I learn, I think you can even, if you were, I'm not saying I have this, but I do see the pattern that certain roots will be Greek and that'll be the oldest ancient energy of the word. And then you'll see the Latin prefix or suffix attached to the beginning or the end. And oftentimes what is really weird is that the Latin has to be flipped in reverse and that will reveal its Hebrew nature. And so I, I, I believe that Latin go, you know, reads from left to right and Hebrew reads from right to left. And so it's really fascinating to me to know that Latin words say one thing in one direction, but if you flip them the other direction, they're actually whispering in Hebrew as well. Horizontally, um, you mean? Flipping them horizontally? Wow. Yeah, like for example, like ser, a lot of people will say it means head, it means master. It also means extra. And sure enough, when you flip ser and you turn it into res or resh, that is the word for head in Hebrew. Right. So it's kind of fun to know some of those, those suffixes and prefixes that are Latinized. They actually go, they swing both ways. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to, uh, to see that reflected in specifically scientific language, right? I mean, scientific language is Latinized typically. And I, I've always suspected when I was younger, like this is meant to keep people from understanding it, right? Because it's like a whole other step. It's like, oh, okay, now you have to learn this other language going in reverse because, you know, we have Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and then English is kind of like a mutt of all three. Would you agree with that? 
Absolutely. Yes. Yep. And I, you're totally spot on. It's like part of what keeps, I guess, what fuels the education system is the complication of the language Mm. such that you have to pay to gain specialty or affluence. And it could take your whole life just to, to unpack the Tower of Babel. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like they've made it simply complicated enough for you to spend a very vast amount of time. What do we, what do we think of Egyptian and its connection to these three languages? Because it seems like none of them can exist the way they do without Egypt's sort of umbilical cord, right? Like they're all sort of, they're all sort of connected to Egypt, right? Yes, man, that is a great question. Well, one thing that is fascinating about Egyptian is it doesn't go east or east or west. It goes top to bottom. You know, it reads in a whole nother fashion. It's also pictographic. I have a theory that it's the other people. It's not my theory, but I love this theory. I find a lot of value in it. That, you know, the Egypt that we know today is it's Egypt proper. It's, you know, it's the capital. And that the actual empire that, that is so mythologized was much, much, much more vast and expansive. And that there were, like in the Bible, they will actually use the term the lands of Egypt. And some people believe that when they say the lands of Egypt, they're not talking about that little spot that we think of today. They're thinking of much vaster, larger territories. And I love the idea that some of those territories were actually in America. And there's a few fellows who I could maybe recommend if people want to kind of dig into this. One guy, his name is, let's be, is it HBTV? Is that right? Oh, no. UB, it's UBTV, all caps. And he really goes in deep with the idea that the extended territories of Egypt were, in fact, the Americas. And he also, one really great little nugget that he brings forward is that, you know, when Napoleon, who might have, there might have been, we know that there, Napoleon had at least one double. You know, he had a brother who probably stood in and served his punishment and the last years of Napoleon's life was probably his brother taking the hit the hit so that Napoleon could fade into obscurity and there's a lot to that that rabbit hole but i think there were many napoleons waging many campaigns in many places and directions i think the sky's kind of the limit with when it comes to napoleon but one thing that ubtv brings forward is that while napoleon was quotes, conquering Egypt, just lines up with his conquest of Egypt. It lines up with the Louisiana Purchase. And it is very possible that he was actually waging a war in the, in the West of the Americas, uh, setting up the manifest destiny and expansionism by laying waste to the people and the cultures of, that were West of the Mississippi, essentially. And so when he gets, he actually gets called back to Europe in, in that time frame, he gets on a ship called the Hermione, which is a name of a character in Harry Potter. The name is preserved in that 
the female interest in that in that film. He gets on the Hermione, and it actually takes him way longer to get back to France than it would if he was just going across the Mediterranean from Egypt proper. It would have just been a couple weeks, but it took him much, much longer. And the ship records still reveal that he was on the waters for longer than a month, I think. And that is an, a fun little keystone to kind of consummate the possibility that he was waging war in Americas and setting up the Louisiana Purchase. So what we think of as Egypt might have been far more vast than we could than what we're told. And also, I believe that that had a lot to do with the scientific mastery over explosives. And a lot of what, I mean, even the word, you know, Napoleon was a ballistics expert. And his name is actually whispering Napoleon blown apart. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's really funny. It's really silly. But he was a ballistics expert and he did blow a lot of shit up. You know, the, what did they call that? They burned, they burn everything in their path. They scorched earth. Mm. The scorched earth, I think, is another term that was part of his style of warfare. So I think that a lot of what happened there in that the French wars was kind of the result of people getting a hold of a whole new level of technology and the ability to blow, you know, cannons that we've never, you know, more and more developed advancements in cannons and the ability to invade other cultures and take over. And they probably, I think, you know, I think we had Napoleons here and we had Napoleons there. And another thing, if you drop the N off of Napoleon, you get Apollyon. And so he was very likely fulfilling a biblical prophecy in that, in that time. So mm. I, think, I think Revelations has happened many times. And I think of it almost as like a recipe or, you know, an inevitability of the collapse of the collapse and the expansion of one empire and the growing out of another one. You know, I think of revelations as just the recipe for revolutions and Napoleon and Apollyon was just another fulfilling of the inevitable fall of the culture and expansion of the new. So Mm. I I know that went kind of everywhere. Oh, that's Uh, all right. That's all right. We love that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm still a little hung up on the multiple Napoleon theory because This checks out with a bunch of stuff I've found. Uh, Some people claim that Napoleon wasn't killed, but he let his brother sort of take his place and lived out the rest of his life in New Jersey, of all places. And, and, And also there was a Frenchman who was a part of his squadron that allegedly was the French sort of identity of the Count St. Germain before he became the Count St. Germain of New Orleans, the vampire sort of figure that we hear about in New Orleans. So Napoleon definitely, he hits that sort of, you know, midpoint for the, the conspiracy like spider web. Like he's right in the middle, a bunch of connections, 360 to this guy. You know what I mean? Very well said. Very, very well said. And, you know, I have a, and this does, it, it's a great bottleneck, you know, because they've got the, whatever that, uh, the Rosetta Stone mm. of all Egyptian language is attributed to him. So that bottlenecks the information real in a, you know, in a very captured way. Right. But I've been really pondering, when if 
the Luciferian mentality is actually regulatory capture on the periodic table and the ability to do high-grade alchemy. And they hide it behind all these horrible, you know, creepy images and myths and stories that make people want to look away or get uncomfortable and change the subject. But in fact, you know, maybe what's hiding underneath is just mastery over the elements in a, in a, you know, in a very controlled fashion, you know, like, like Jack Parsons, you know, he got, he died from in an explosion. Well, his name, and he prophesized, he said, you know, I'm going to go up in a big ball of light to the great master Lucifer light God in the whatever. Well, his name is Jack P. Arson. You know, and it just sometimes it blows my mind how name magic. I can't tell if it's like man's, you know, man's work or or, or is the our do our words prophesize our destiny? You know, mm. and you know, do our our names setting our fate in a way that maybe go goes unappreciated? So I. I can't say I'm, I'm walking the fine rope with that one. I don't know if it's. Uh... Well, I'll tell you what I watched for the first time in the mouth of madness. The, have you ever seen the, the, what's this Carpenter film? I forget the guy's first name, something Carpenter. He, the, the movie is about a, an insurance investigator who gets pulled into looking for a novelist who has gone missing. The publishing company is like, we need to find this guy. His novels are all a hit. He's coming out with his final manuscript. Can you go track him down? And the guy, you know, doesn't believe a single word of, of any of the novel, but gets pulled into the story, literally ends up in where the, the story is taking place, a, a town that's supposedly not supposed to exist. And he, you know, is the main character and unwittingly puts himself in an insane <laughs> asylum and you find that out in the first five minutes of the movie. So I'm not spoiling anything, but it is, it is an incredibly well done movie that plays on what you just described, this sort of element of predestiny and, and are we responsible for our own destiny or is someone else writing that for us, you know, and, and could we possibly become the author of our own destiny? I think that's really what you should take away from that film it's yeah. kind of disturbing the way they present the idea to you but it, it it's sort of like when you have the name you resonate at that value and then life pulls you towards those circumstances possibly that's what i tend to think when i hear like Jack P. Arson you know he blows himself up he's fascinated with combustibles his whole life I mean, the guy was even related to some witches. I think Juan has talked about this with you before. Parsons is, is connected to one of the f first or last witches to ever be hung in Massachusetts. He's related to her by blood. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems like it's a mix of things. You know, your genealogy, where you're born, how your parents treat you what your name is, you know, it's like this perfect soup of, of, of things. And I like the perspective that you and I have of, of being outside looking in, mm -hmm. but then you start to realize like, you know, you're in it. We're all in it. 
you know, especially <laughs> when you when you really become like a detective about it and you start piecing things together and you notice those little sink winks. And I know this is something you guys talk a lot about on weaving spiders. And I think the tricky part is with technology, how are we going to discern an organic sink wink from a synthetic sink wink? That's what I'm worried about moving forward because that, you know, now it feels like maybe uncharted territory to us. But in 10 years, this could be like, you know, trendy, you know, it could be everyone's mom and, and daughter are, are talking about sink winks, you know, like 15 years ago, nobody would have thought everybody's on board with UFOs. Now everybody's on board with UFOs. So I don't, I hope I'm not being too far fetched here, but it, it feels like we need to start to, to, I don't know boil down like what we're do what we're what we're really doing here you know because I, I think there's a there's a a reason to do these investigations you know and and if you go into it just like oh yeah we'll see what happens it's all fun and games like maybe that's how you get <laughs> pulled along you know pulled along for a ride i don't know you are so right about that yeah it is it's a whole new frontier it really is a whole new frontier you know, one thing that just gets me sometimes is how my phone is clearly reading my thoughts. Hmm. And, and it reads my thoughts from across the house. Like my phone is downstairs. I'm thinking about something, you know, 5, 10, 20 minutes. Then I come downstairs and it, the advertising is exactly what I was thinking about all the way upstairs, you know. And, and I am totally able to entertain the possibility then it can read our thoughts. And that is so, has so much potential, can be very, very dangerous, can be very, you know, has the, the potential to be abused and, you know, very misleading. But what is kind of wild about that, we talked about this, I think, on the last time when we talked about the tarot and the Marvel Avengers, I just happened to bring up the Munt Modernization Act. Which was, a, or I guess, it, I guess it might be called the Smith Munt Remodernization. Well, Act. they they repealed the Smith Munt Act. I think is what yeah. we're talking about. So they modernized it, which is like a fancy way of saying we're we're getting rid of this thing that blocked us from propagandizing the media. Explicitly. Now we can do it explicitly and not apologize. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I even say I even say that they've incentivized right. propagandizing us. Yeah. Right. So for me, that collapses the what we used to or the boundary between private and public reality and fiction. Those things have been blurred in a very dangerous way. And a lot of people, you know, were being led into this new frontier and a, a, a very, I can't, I, I mean, I don't want to scare monger, but it is dangerous. It is dangerous, you know, and no, a lot you're, of like. You're, you're, yeah. you're rightly. So I, I think you should be warning people about this because, you know, one thing that I really appreciate about synchromysticism is its ability to warm people up to the idea of their intuition and give them a process. Because intuition is such a, at least to me, it feels like it could be such a hard Thing to convey. It's so intangible. It's something that you really just have to experience yourself to truly understand. Whereas synchromysticism is like intuition applied, 
right? Because you're sort of taking your intuition, you're you're using it in uh, the way a detective would. And because we're in this like soup of information, like there are so many points of information that, you know, in order to like see through the chaos of it all, you need to follow your intuition, right? I think that's kind of where this stuff comes up. But to your point, when fiction and, and fact are blurred the way they are in the media, you know, where do we where do we even find solid ground to, to start this work? Yeah, man, you know, it's so funny. So Juan and I are doing the episode on Star Wars. And so a lot of my metaphors and examples are very Star Wars oriented at the moment. But I think of the scene Luke and Obi-Wan and Chewie and Han Solo are on the Millennium Falcon. And it's the first time they see the Death Star. And it's Obi-Wan Kenobi who's standing behind everybody furthest away. He's the first one to say, that's not a moon. That, he says, that's a base. That, and then Han Solo's like, no, nah, it's too big. And then they start getting closer and closer. And that's when Han is like, oh, shit, I think you're right. I got a bad feeling about this. And then he starts to try to do tactical maneuvers, but it's too late. The tractor beam has them. Right. Yeah, they start, they get drawn in. And I, I feel like we're kind of in that point where, like, we're the Obi-Wan telling everybody, you know, hold on a second. There's something, there's something really mystical about this situation. And, you know, the skeptics are more like Han Solo where they, they're, you know, where they, you know, they get fish hooked by the whole FX Bitcoin debacle that just happened with, you know, over there in the old, the Ukraine, which synchromistically, every time we say in Ukraine, we're actually whispering to each other, the nuke rain as in nuclear rain. Wow. And that is scary. That is scary that a lot of people are saying in Ukraine, in Ukraine. And I don't know if you saw Umbrella Academy. Did no. you see Umbrella Academy? No. Is that a show it, or a movie? It's a series that came out recently. Okay. It's synchromistically overcharged. It's, it's like made, made for our, for, for people with our worldview for sure. But they are constantly using this umbrella symbolically. They like weave it in in very unique ways in every episode. The umbrella will like come up in a really nifty, artistically unique fashion. Well, on one of the grand finales, the umbrella that they show is a nuclear mushroom. Wow. And it's like, and it makes you say, oh shit. Yeah. It's kind of like now you're caught in the tractor beam and yeah. you can't look away and you're going to, it draws you in. With this morbid curiosity, yeah, that's one I recommend. That's well, a very fascinating one. Yeah, an umbrella is also like a layer between you and source, right? Where you block the sun. <laughs> I also, what comes to mind is the video game, which I've never played, but I know a lot about it because my friends loved it, Resident Evil and the Umbrella Corp. And again, I never played the game, so I don't know enough about it. But one day I was walking in New Haven and I saw a taxi vehicle. It looked like a taxi but it had Umbrella Corp on the door. And I'm like looking at this thing like, Mark, are you like uncovering a mystery here? Like, you know, my all my red flags start going off. I'm like, is this a CIA hitman like I'm looking at? Like, who is, what is Umbrella Corp? I look it up. I'm like, oh, this is that stupid video game that my friends like. 
But it's interesting to think like that game grabbed one person so much that that person drives a, a vehicle themed around, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And that whole concept of, you know, zombies kind of plays into this nuclear holocaust fantasy. I, some people, you know, believe that nuclear weapons are real. Some people believe they're fake. I personally don't take a side on that. I think, you know, whatever they are, they're, you know, they're using a dangerous weapon and maybe they're calling it more dangerous than it is, but it's still a weapon. It still hurts the people that are there, not to mention to throw another synchronicity in there. Chernobyl, the most famous, arguably, you know, radiation site is in Ukraine, right? So here we have that like stacking up history, repeating itself. And wow, to... To think that people are saying nuke rain every time they they talk about this. I mean, now I'm now I'm trying to figure out why they were getting us to repronounce Kiev instead of Kiev. I wonder what what that's doing. Kiev, <laughs> Kiev, you in Ukraine? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know what kind of spell that is, but but it's certainly, you know. It's hard to it's hard to to reconcile that when you know everything we know. I think maybe, you know, if you're thinking about like taking some of this stuff to Thanksgiving dinner, I don't know if this episode will be out by Thanksgiving, but maybe maybe that's not the best place to start, right? Because because <laughs> people people who are not accustomed to this kind of thinking, they're going to see the word magic stuff and think like so what? You can do that with any word, right? I, I'm sure you've heard that before. Like people might say like, oh, but you could do that with any word. It, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's really the case that you can kind of like take these letters and make them mean anything? Or is it really just like, you know, a few archetypical like shades of, of a meaning embedded in one word? Because that's kind of what it seems like to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that you can, you can with, a, with enough imagination, you can probably do get away with a lot that a lot of people with, with not as much context, not as much, you know, field of view per se would, would almost criticize or try to, yeah, to, to naysay upon. But one thing, one thing I'm starting to think, and this is, and this is where it gets really difficult. I believe that so much of our language is is way more astronomical than we than most people have context for, and and that's where that's kind of where a lot of my work and my keystone, my Rosetta Stone, is actually like an umbrella with all the with all the answers above my head, just floating it. That's where I actually tap into in a major way. And so oftentimes when we have a mundane word, which if you have a, in that, this, I'm not being condescending, but with a mundane perspective, it just, it should be grounded. It should have foundation for people to access it. But oftentimes I'm bouncing things off of my, my grasp for the heavens and the dynamics of the heavens. And that is actually where I come back with like really far out revelations. And, and that's what we do a lot on the show. And one good example of that is like, well, a couple examples here. One, you know, Frederick Nietzsche, he was a philologist. 
And so he was a master of these, these tweaking of languages and these little rules that you're allowed to bend and break. And I think of philology as like a lockpick, a lockpicking kit that you can use to open up words and find out whole layers of meaning beyond what was first available. And what kind of tickles my fancy is the idea that you know Nietzsche's writing inspired the Nazi in a major way. It was it was twisted and appropriated. I think he'd be rolling over in his grave if he knew what they did with his writing ultimately. And it's maybe not his fault as much as some of the people who handled his writing and proliferated it after he was gone. But what's fascinating is that Nietzsche and the word Nazi are so very similar. You just drop a few of the very unnecessary consonants in his name. (laughs) He's got like, you know, six consonants packed into in together. And Nietzsche and Nazi are so fascinatingly similar and his influence on the Nazis also is undeniable. So there's, you know, philologically there is a relationship, but also we know that they were venerating his work in a dangerous fashion, a version of his work with so thus spoke Zorathustra. So that's that's one example of like, okay, you had to go around the the block a couple times, but you made the connection. And it is, it's in the fruit, you know, the, the fruit bears reward. And another one that freaked us out was we did a show on werewolves. And while we were in the show, just on the fly, and that's one thing I love about going live or doing a show with a bunch of other people is there's kind of like you're throwing the ideas around back and forth. You're in the heat of the moment. And then you have a revelation and it can be really exhilarating. And while we were doing the werewolf show, we found out that there's a Norse word for werewolf that is essentially, it's like Hamer. And it's O-L-F-H-A-M-N-E-R, Ulf Hamner. And so that's when I was, I realized, oh, so like your olfactory senses is your ability to smell. And so you're actually saying like your, your wolf factory senses or your mm. wolf faculties, your wolf-like faculties are Oof. your olfactory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And then I realized, wait a second, Adolf Hitler, <laughs> was, was his name Head Wolf? Was he the Ed Wolf Hitler? And I was just like, you know, throwing it out there on the table. Well, sure enough, it was the next day we looked it up and the name Adolf is a, it's a mantle of the wolf head secret society. And so he was publicly displaying a secret society mantle as his name and his headquarters that they, they, they were bunked out in the woods was called the Wolf's Lodge. And so she was like the leader of a Norse secret society cult that considered themselves werewolves. And, and we do know that he was recruiting pe- fellows who considered themselves bears, the bear zerkers. Wow. And if you go into <laughs> Norse mythology, the bear zerkers would go to war side by side with the, with the wolves, the werewolves. So werewolves and berserkers are like Norse allies in battle. It's so it was just really fascinating that sometimes you just like throw an idea out. Wouldn't that be interesting? 
But then it's a day later that you do the research and you're like, wow, we were really hitting something hard. And that has flown under so many people's radar, mm. you know, so many people's radar. So, yeah, that's just another. Oh, oh, hold on. I'm not even done. <laughs> not even done. OK, so then I find out that in the in the Zodiac, under the sign of Libra, there is a minor decan called the lupus. And lupus is just a minor constellation. And it's it's a wolf. It's the wolf constellation. And I said, isn't that fascinating? And if you look up the minor decans on a graphic, that the Lepus constellation has this correspondence to Gemini, the twins. And so it'll have a little Gemini, the two I symbols, you know, Roman numeral two underneath it. And so now I realize that that correspondence to Gemini in this wolf constellation is revealing the foundation of Rome. With the twins, Romulus and Remus, suckling on the Lepus, the, the big mama wolf that founded, that kept them alive in the wilderness. Mm. It's, and so it was so fascinating that we had all the ingredients for this Roman founding figure correspondent to the wolf. And then so it is Anubis, the granddaddy wolf of them all in the Egyptian pantheon, who is holding the scales of judgment who will, will weigh your heart against a feather. And so we have the Libra scales, we've got the wolf, we got the Gemini twins. All of that was packed in in my little mental sky cipher. But it took a couple of days to figure it out. It was just based on a hunch to begin with. Isn't Anubis like standing at the like the gateway to the underworld too? So yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't... In Libra what... is when we dip down past that, past the equinox, and go into the underworld. Right. Scorpio is sort of like the underworld energy, fall, winter, darkness. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So people here listening should be well aware and familiar with the 12 constellations. And I've always thought it was interesting that we have, you know, these sort of like sets of symbols, right? We have 12 symbol sets in the constellation with the alphabet we have 26 symbol sets and every language has its own you know grouping of symbol sets and when you start to think of it like that you start to think like okay there's really not that many like sets out there there's all of these different ones but like the parallels that we're drawing make a lot more sense when you start to see it in that context that like you know, English is just a symbol set. And like, how many symbols are there actually in the world around us? What do we use for symbols? We use animals, we use things in nature, we use behaviors, activities, cultural aspects. I mean, it's a finite amount of things. So, yes. you know, to those who might want to suggest that, oh, well, you could just find meaning out of any combinations of letters, I would argue you really you you wouldn't be able to go beyond what we're connecting here. I mean, anything more would be sort of fudging the numbers. I think, you know, the, the symbols speak for themselves, and it's just about recognizing what means what and how it all fits together. So people are familiar with the constellations, as I said, but the nine Enneagram points 
right? I, I'm familiar with Gurdjieff. He might not be the most known mystic, but Gurdjieff was a, a mystic here in the United States who had a big impact on theosophy and other spiritualist movements during the 19th century. And he's kind of famous for his Enneagram work. And I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on the Enneagram as a symbol? Where does it fit in, you know, the whole sort of zeitgeist of symbol sets? Yes, nice setup. So I studied it quite a while back, maybe two years ago, and, you know, just spent a good week with it, kind of, you know, testing it out theoretically, you know, the way that, you know, it's nine personality stations that are divided into three groups that are, that essentially you can ask yourself just a quick series of questions and narrow down which personality type you associate with primarily. And now if you're there, it's what's important is that you don't let yourself get too cornered into one personality type because it should give you some guidance on what decisions will lead you positively and what, what, what decisions will lead you negatively. You can think of it as like a carrot or a stick. And so you will have a relationship to people around you. And if you know their personality type, you can actually get a good feel for how their personality relates to yours dynamically. And those three person, those three segments are feel, think, and act. And, you know, it's generally used, the Enneagram is used in a lot of self-help groups. And in fact, we could probably say it's also implemented or intrinsic to a lot of secret societies and cults that, you know, Scientology comes to mind immediately, you know, just, you know, in, in terms of like helping a person discover themselves more. But then the byproduct of that, if you're in a collective, is that the collective gets to know a lot more about you as well. You know, so it does have that kind of two-sided aspect to it. And in that, with that in mind, you know, there's a lot of gram tests you can take online. But I think it might be better to, you know, keep your answers to yourself and maybe not broadcast your your tendencies or your decision making. So the feel, think, act, they're grouped as so two, three, and four is is in the feel grouping. And then five, six, and seven is in the thoughtful thinking group. And then the act is up above is the eights, nines, and the ones. And so when you lay it out, it has this really beautiful sacred geometry. Here, I'll send you this image. If you want to, I'm actually, yeah, I'm sharing. You can't see from the Zoom meeting, but on our OBS screen where we're recording, I'm showing the neogram. This one might be a little bit complicated, though, because you've already, this is the one where you've put like the Greek gods and the corresponding parts of the body. So we have that one up. Is there a simpler one you want me to share to begin with, or is that one okay to, to start with? Let's go to the one that has the alchemy signs. Okay. That's, that, that one's yeah that one with the like, uh, the with the anatomical what is that the endocrine system mm-hmm. that one's still kind of a work in progress but a, it is an interesting idea i think i had to finagle it to make it fit theoretically what i think is a, a good correspondence but this one with alchemy has is a little more simplistic because it just boils down to the basic elements mm. and 
what's kind of neat is you can, so one of my specialties is correspondence. And, you know, when I see like earth, air, water, and fire, I, you know, from all the way back in the days working at the bookshop, you know, I've also learned that the water is intrinsic to music and harmony, having good flow, having good feel, you know, you need to be a good feeler to be a first to excel in music. Mm. And then I also have learned that air corresponds with arithmetic and math, which is also important for music, but that is to do, to be a good musician, you need that good, the math to know, you know, your tempos and your, whatever, your signatures and your tones and all the, you know, all the other aspects, but that's all thoughtful. That's all mind oriented. And so then up above is the earth elements which is correspondent with the, the act grouping and the manifest, the body. And that has the element of earth in the actual physical solid realms. And so what is really fascinating is, is those three quadrants, the water, air, and land, those are the ingredients for the law. L-A-W is land, air, and water. And what I've always just marveled at is the idea that law does not consider fire. There's no fire in the law. But my thinking is that we, our mind, the charge, the electricity of our thoughts is the fire that is absent. So law is like an inanimate object. It's a it's external from us. It'll be here long after we're gone. It was here long before we got here. And we bring our imagination, which is the fire, to the law. So mm. I put that in the middle. And so those are also correspondent to the, to the quadrivium. Harmony, arithmetic, geometry, and the fire is astrology. And that really lit me up that this, that this Enneagram has not only the four elements of, you know, standard understanding of the realm, but that astrology is like the missing link from the law. And so I put it in the center as the fire element. And what is really cool is that the Enneagram is in the shape of a star. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, so many things are coming to mind right now. For, uh -huh. for me, fire, it's like the light that goes upwards, right? Like spirit. Right comes down to the earth and then reflects back up as fire, right? Because, you know, your soul is full of light. You're burning with, you know, will and courage and power and being in the domain of the law in a courtroom with the judge standing before you. It's almost like a test of your fire, a test of your <laughs> spirit, you know. And the other thing that comes to mind is this is very similar to the way the Hindu culture sees this sort of thing with their kappa, pitta, and vata, which are all balances of, you know, the doshas, which are air, water, earth, and fire. And every human being has maybe like more of a dosha with fire or a dosha with water. And like a kappa person is like, I think, more earthy, a pitta is more fiery, and a vata is more like airy. But we're all sort of balanced by that water and that we all share being, you know, 70 something percent water. But wow. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting to see all laid out here, brother. What do you think about the, the Ayurvedic approach? Have you put the Hindu stuff into this yet? 
it's I I have not uh, not yet. I'm actually not very versed in that, but it is so interesting that that's where your mind went as well. So synchronous, because just this week, I think it was on Wednesday, we were doing Scorpio season herbology. And some of our, our friends from Healing Homes, oh, I forget, I want to drop her company name, but she just, she's going to start a podcast soon. Mario and Michelle, Mario's channel is Symbolic Studies and Michelle oh, cool. is cool. Yeah, I know up. Mario. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a good couple. And then a friend of ours from Tippecanoe Herbs, his name is Kyle. He was on there with us and they were talking about the, the doshas. And kind of brought it into our into our mind space in a really fun way. And I hadn't even thought about how it corresponds to this Enneagram, which was where my mind was at. So thank you for linking that. That's really cool. Happy to help. That. Happy to help, man. And I'm I'm grateful for you to present this all in such a concise way. I recently received a book about the Enneagram and how to sort of, you know, master your own Enneagram, your own diagram and draw it out and figure out, you know, where you have strong points in your personality, where you might have weak points and things like that. And I haven't spent yeah. any time looking through it, but now I'm very stoked. The flame has been stoked. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. It, you know, one thing that Gertrude says, and I think it's important to always keep in mind is that the Enneagram should not be a stagnant experience. And a person should not like find their score and lean into that for the rest of their life. You should try to use it as a tool for to progress, to always be on the move and definitely not as a crutch. And so it does have, a, it, like I said, the carrot or the stick is always in play. Like when you're in a stressful situation, the Enneagram is dynamic in that uh, it, people can look up what's called the two arrow theory. And so if you're stressed out, it'll actually move like the, tr the triangle is the easiest way to describe it. The triangle will go counterclockwise if you're stressed, but then clockwise if you're in a, in a positive situation. So you will literally look to your right or your left wing, depending on if you're in the triangle or if you're in what's called the heptad, which is the kind of the spidery looking ones, twos, fours, eights, fives, or sevens. If you're in the heptad, you'll actually love it. Yes, yes. And so it is very fascinating how accurate it is to, it's almost like the harmony of the human emotion adheres to the music of this, of this fascinating matrix here. Mm. And what I think is also, you know, so many people use this for self-help, but then, you know, the a conspiracy expert like us comes along and maybe should warn people that, it's very likely that this is already implemented in marketing strategies. Mm. Oh, yeah. And yes. And, you know, per Edward Bernays, we know that any group of corporate execs getting together to talk about the individual who is the customer constitutes a conspiracy. Mm. You know, so, absolutely. So I, yeah. So oh, I think this is, was that? This you just brought something up as I usually do. I was listening to a couple of your past interviews before having you on, sort of getting warmed up. And you probably maybe already figured this out by now, but at the time when this was recorded six months ago, 
you were like, yeah, I, I know there's a connection between Jung and Alan Dulles. I don't quite know if he worked for him or not. And I know the connection. I learned about this recently. Maybe you did since then. That was about five months ago. But Dulles had a mistress that he sort of was in touch with who through that mistress was able to get information out of Jung. I think that woman was like, sort of a student of Jung. I don't I don't think Jung was sleeping with her. I think Dulles was sleeping with her and he sort of yeah. used her to get all this information from Carl Jung. So there's your connection point, but you're absolutely right. The Enneagram, Carl Jung's work on, you know, the psychology and alchemy of the mind, all of this is used against us, so to speak, by these corporations. So it's incredibly important uh, to understand. I think also these words are all sort of vague and attractive enough to where you're like, yeah, I'm an individualist or oh, I'm a helper. You know, like everybody can relate to one of these. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, the red arrow, is that signifying the direction of the movement? Like would somebody go from five to seven, then to one, then to four, kind of following where the red arrows are pointing? Or is it like either or what's the differentiation between the red and the black arrow in that in this one that we're looking at here that is the difference between the carrot or the stick and let me see i might have to get the book out because i cropped it out for that image mm. i think that let me look because i could probably suss it well i think yes some are I, go ahead well, yeah, I think that the black arrows are for integration. They call it integration, which is like in a, a positive decision-making. Mm -hmm. And then the red arrows would be disintegration or a stress situation. Right. So it does indicate which way your decision-making would be. Right. And, you know, I, I often, I know this is like sci-fi hyperbolic, but I often think about like if, if the cyborgs were taking over, and they were going to like come and try to shoot you, they already know all the possible directions you would jump or leap or Yikes. try to avoid. Uh, yeah. You know, or if you would stand still, they would even know if you would be likely to freeze. They know your fight, flight, or right. freeze response. Well, and that's why, like, when you were describing before how your phone like is is knowing what you're thinking and advertising to you in the moment based on that, I mean... Yes, it, it's like that statement. I think Arthur Clarke or somebody made that that you know a technology you know sufficiently advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic to a lower culture. And you know we're we're that test group, the consumers who you know the intelligentsia is performing their magical acts on. There's a mechanical explanation, sure, but it appears like mind you know telepathy when you're experiencing it like holy crap how does instagram know that i was just thinking about barbecues and now i'm seeing ads for a barbecue come like right. you know a, a grill or or barbecue sauce or what you know like it, it's yeah. it's 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 not as like deadly as a cyborg tracking your every move <laughs> but it's as, just as unsettling you know like it's just as unsettling totally <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, you know, and a couple other caveats to this is like, so some of your tendencies, you might be more of a, let's say, a, a one when you're around your parents. You might tend to shine your perfectionist as best you can around people who you really care 
about how their reflection shines back to you. So you might be more of a one with them than you are with your sweetheart. You know, with your sweetheart, you might be more of a, an eight, which, you know, show your, your lusty side. So depending on the people around you, you probably will relate a little more into a different quadrant of the Enneagram. So it's very dynamic that way. And, and also that's kind of important that we, you know, we don't corner ourselves too much. And then one other caveat is whatever the government or, you know, the, the advertising conspirators, whatever they have their hands on, it is probably way more dynamic than this oversimplification that we're talking about. Mm. It, it's probably much more advanced than, than we may ever know, you know, cause it's been refined and time tested. So, well, and that's the whole phrasing of millionaires don't use it, but billionaires do astrology. Right. And, and, and yeah. if you have a billion dollars, you can hire the most complicated astrologer. Like you could go as <laughs> deep as you need to. So yeah, I agree with that. I think the the trouble is, is, you know, we're in this sort of uh, base of the pyramid hierarchy where we're on the bottom for the, for the most part, you know, people in a certain class, I would say in America, if, even if you're in the lowest class, you're still probably above the lower classes of the rest of the world, but still like we're in this situation where, you know, we have limited resources, we're trying to survive. And then you're also, you're guided towards this ascension, this gnosis, this ability to enlighten yourself and maybe free yourself from this paradigm. And then you realize, oh God, the billionaires have invested so much money into making it a hard for me to do that. And B, They've, they have all the, re they have, you know, all those tools. So I'm glad yeah. that I was born in this age where the internet sort of broke the, the gates open and, and we're sort of allowed for the first time to, to look at this information. But this is what it takes. It takes smart people boiling it down for less smart people until it gets all the way down to the base of the pyramid because intelligence is, is, I think it's not an evaluation of who you are as a soul. It's an evaluation of, you know, where you are in our society. And, you know, equally speaking, our souls are all brilliant, right? Like we, we've just yeah, been, buddy. you know, we've been put in places that have distinguished our, or extinguished our souls and diminished our souls. So this information you know, we got to boil it down for people who are in those dark places. They need it simplified because it's more powerful that way, you know? And I think that's, yes. that's why the myths are so incredible. You know, religions each have their own, you know, stories that point at this. Obviously there's a political manipulation that's going on within those realms, but the myths seem to be somewhat unscathed. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on the classics, but when did you connect the Enneagram to deities, archetypes from the Greek pantheon? And should I share that next image? Because I'm very curious to know when you made this, how you made this connection. Let's see. Ed, well, my my cheat sheet, the secret to what made the made a um, fascinating leap in these connections was that you can find the Enneagram with planetary correspondences. 
And so like the one is um, is correspondent with Mars. Two of the giver is correspondent with the moon. Number three, the achiever is correspondent with Neptune. And so that was a huge, filled in huge gaps for me. And I was able to essentially, through the planetary correspondences, I was able to test them against what I know, what we all know about the Greek pantheon. Mm. And so that was really the gateway, was knowing that there are planetary relationships. I can actually go through them off the top of my head. So the, the four is Venus, and then you break from the feel, you break into the number five, you're in the think quadrant. And so a number five is Mercury. A number six is Uranus. And number seven is Jupiterian. And then you break across the next trine, you're in the, the body instinct act grouping. And then the number eight is Saturnian. And then number nine at the pinnacle is Pluto, the planet Pluto. And so that is really actually like my ultimate deciphering cheat sheet was putting in the planetary correspondences because I actually happen to know that, you know, in standard astrology, that those planets have personalities that do fit with the Greek gods that they're correspondent to. And so that was another lens that I placed on top of the Enneagram that really brought forward the Greek pantheon. And so I tested it primarily, and this is on my YouTube channel, which, by the way, is a shared learning experience. I want to make that clear that, you know, I'm, I'm just like any other Joe Schmo, just testing these theories on my channel. I often make mistakes. I do my best to come back and correct them. In fact, I do have a correction I'm going to make on my next video. I've put the three fates of, of Greek mythology, the three Moirae, I've put them in the Enneagram, and I think I want to adjust and make an addendum to that. So come over to Slick Dissident, and you'll see, you'll see where I think I might need to make an adjustment. I still stand by the idea that the three Groups of the Enneagram are the three moiterae, Lachesis, Clotho, and Atropos, who have Roman names as well, that have evolved into the Roman goddesses. And then that became the three wise men in the Bible. How would we spell so, that, moray? Is that M-O-R-A-Y? I think it's M-O-I-R-E, moiray. And I might be wrong with that too, but it's interesting because now that I see it, how it's spelled, it's the suffix for the word grimoire. And, you know, that's kind of the uh, related. A grimoire is a, a book of spells or, or, you know, certain ceremonial magical rituals. <laughs> Ooh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Yes. This once, you know, once, once this thing takes hold, be careful, folks, <laughs> be careful, because I start to see it just about everywhere. It really seems to just be a, a foundational cipher for the realm. And I can't wait to get done with this Star Wars project so I can wash my hands of this and walk away because it does, it, it can't be so captivating. It gets hard not to see it everywhere, but I love that. The grimoires, mm. that's a perfect, that's a perfect fit. I well, like the first way you pronounced it made me think of like the Maitreya, the concept of the Maitreya, but now yes. I'm, I'm seeing that's a different, that's a different word altogether. So here we are with the Enneagram. I have the image of the Enneagram with the Greek gods, their names in sort of teal, 
And then the seven deadly sins are also, it seems, in red. That's the image uh, yeah. that people are seeing. Yeah. So would you like to sort of explain a little further, like maybe how someone could use this to better understand the neogram and themselves when they when they do this sort of personality test? Like, do you think maybe if somebody finds that they're maybe uh, more of a, a three, right, at that point in time, that they should consider Neptune's influence over them or Dionysian influence? Like, how would you suggest, like, you know, integrating this understanding? Yes, man, that is, a, I think you are spot on. You are intuiting it quite clearly, yes. So what is potentially, like I said, there's, you know, all of this has double, is double-edged, you know, it can work to your benefit and it, it and it can also be very, almost overly captivating. But what happens, so I, I use the allegory of Plato's cave here. And I think that a lot of people would very easily perceive that, like I keep saying, it's important that you don't get stuck in place and that you don't use it as a crutch or like say, oh, of course I'm going to do that because I'm a two. Well, actually, the idea here is that you want to be, you want to consider your option as a four. You want to look to the four for guidance to, so that you can move forward, so that you can progress. And you want to know that a heavy shadow for you might be that eight, the other wing. And then in other situations, that that flow goes the opposite way. So, But the allegory of the cave, the people who are tied down with the shadows being cast on the wall, um, this is Plato's cave. And they believe that the shadows is all that there is, that the whole of reality is, is only sh shadow play. But if you can grasp the nature of the cave, then you are able to move around. And to, and to see how you could be manipulated or how you could maybe manipulate the realm for yourself, for your own benefit. And so I do think of the, like the, the list that is in black, the reformer, the helper, the achiever, those are your, your higher self, your best attributes. Well, what I have put on this graphic in red, those are your shadow attributes. And so a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, I got a thing with pride. So I totally relate to the helper or the caretaker. And so that's what's really fascinating about this is that it's, it's once you relate to one, you will probably start to see that your shadow shines through in that prideful way, you know, or if you're an achiever, you probably have some, some deceit in your shadow that you're not so, you know, likely to look at that you're avoiding maybe and another thing for each one of those the ascended or the shadow aspect there are many other synonyms it's not limited to the one word you know like your shadow it says deceit but that's an oversimplification it, it could be self-deceit it's not that you are lying to other people you might be lying to yourself and so dionysus is a good example of that achiever because he's known for imbibing you know he's a uh, uh uh, Bacchanalian debauchery is a is kind of a signature of an, of the achiever that they just can't they just go for it and they go for gusto and they party so hard and they might be not looking at their shadow or not realizing that they're being steered or triggered by the shadow of self deceit and so that's kind of uh, how the red 
shadow can be used to your benefit to kind of shine a light where you may not have looked before. Right. And even, and it can also, if you know that you have a controller in your life, it gives you a better understanding of the the two-sided aspect of themselves, you know, the two sides of their personal coin. So in that, in that way, it can help you understand yourself better, but also will, you'll see the patterns in your life that you tend to draw either a a left wing or a right wing into your life from different circumstances. Mm, So that I think is a good allegory for how the shadow, that's why I put the shadow on the outer ring of this graphic, because I think of it as the shadows on the cave wall. Mm. And then the ascendant aspect of each station is like your highest self, the thing that you are, should take pride in or own publicly. You can even think of it as public and private now that I think about that. Yeah. Uh, and I like the fluidity of, of thinking of this as a way to move through your issues and, and not be so stagnant. You know, I think that's what turns a lot of people off to those personality tests. You know, some of them are just so cheap to begin with. But this, I think, precedes, let's say, the Internet personality tests and it is worth understanding where you're at at that moment in life. And I mean, this whole idea that the leader, the challenger, the controller is Saturnian. I mean, <laughs> that is incredible for where we're at with what we think about. I mean, the Saturn death cult, the Saturn cube. I mean, it's so interesting to think like these rulers have been using this symbol of Saturn and who knows, maybe it's as simple as, well, they just see him as the strongest leader. He he embodies those leadership qualities that they need to, you know, assimilate themselves with in order to keep their position. Yes, that is so exactly true. And, you know, one thing about the fact that it's an, that it's the eighth position, I, I see sometimes there are linguistic, like we have linguistical truths that adhere to this Enneagram in a, in a fascinating way. So like we have a, so a person who is a eight often receives a lot of hate and they use hate as a tool, as an implement to manipulate. And I mean, there is actually, I have a a list of words somewhere that it's like debate, retaliate. Mm, like all no, these words that have that suffix eight, they, they have a sort of maybe a, a malicious context or aggressor context, a challenger context even. Yes, yes. And wow. even this is really funny because the, the challenger has a shadow of control or also sometimes it's called lust. Right. And so we could even say that master bait <laughs> is intri- is intrinsic to that eight to the eight factor, which yeah. is just really funny. Sometimes these correspondences that might be just camping out in our language in a really neat kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Or the fact that Trump made everybody irate. <laughs> uh, you got it. You nailed it, brother. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Trump Trump is totally an eight. It just some quick confirmations of that, you know. He's got the Saturnian hair swoosh. Mm. It, you know, it looks like the damn rings of Saturn. And another one a lot of people are are passing around is he ate McDonald's every night, allegedly. You know, that's probably product placement, but he ate McDonald's every night. Well, Mac means son of. 
And so in a very mythological way, they were confirming that Saturnian Kronos pattern of eating his own young. Mac Donald's means the son of Donald. So in, in a very subtle way, we were all confirming the myth of Kronos by saying Donald Trump eats the son of Donald every night. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's incredible to think of, like, in that context. Yeah, like the son of Don. Wow. And it, geez, I don't even want to go down the gutter uh -huh. rabbit hole that I was just thinking in my mind. But yeah, there. I'm sure people went there. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really strange. So speaking of Trump, maybe not Trump himself, but the cards, Trump cards, I'm wondering, you know, where do the, the major arcana fit into all this for you? And, and maybe from there we can segue into your research on territories. And, and obviously we'd like to have you on Esoteric America to expand on that further. But yeah, where, where do the, the major arcana fit into the neogram if, if they do at all? Absolutely, yes. So I've kind of stumbled into that in a really just a serendipitous way. I was putting this project aside with the Enneagram when Juan suggested we should be occult Star Wars. And I was I I was already locked and loaded. I could have done a show that day when he invited me because I I got a, a lot of ideas around that because I've already seen tarot cards integrated very clearly into the characters of Star Wars. And so I just flying by the seat of my pants, I started to plug the tarot cards into the Enneagram. And I actually did it wrong the first time because I was just kind of, you know, going on my own in intuition, inspiration, you know, whatever came to mind where I thought, you know, I had like Luke Skywalker as an achiever, a number three. But then when I really, I, I put every, I put one, one through nine, I put it in as my first guess. And it was a little overly complicated. It just felt a little clunky because I wasn't 100% sure on a couple of the stations. And so then I just kind of wiped the slate clean and came at it again with like maybe my second guess. And it was that second time around. So I have Luke Skywalker. I have him as the fool card in the beginning of the film. I see him as the fool card because he has those iconic scenes where he's standing out. He's standing on a cliff, staring off into the sky where there are two suns off in the heavens on his home planet. And there are the two suns. Well, what is really kind of neat is in the old Rider Waite fool deck, fool card, there is a sun behind him, but there's also a zero floating above his head. And so you could interpret that zero as the second sun. And he also has this a belt, which is, I think, embodies the fact that the fool card has his little, his little carrying bag over his shoulder. And then he has the little dog by his ankle. And the little dog is generally white. So I see that as much like R2-D2 by his side, his animus, and his little satchel bag is much like the fool card has the, his belongings on his stick, getting ready for his adventure, and he's fantasizing, he's daydreaming, looking upward. And so I had already put Luke Skywalker as the fool card, but what happened was when I moved him into the beginning of the Enneagram, the, the perfectionist position, I realized, well, the full card is the number one card. It's the first, it's the beginning of the beginning card. 
And then all the other cards that I had already affixed to characters in Star Wars, they just rolled out in numerical order. And when I just followed the numbers, all of the personalities started to fit way better than my first gets. And so I renovated my, my first pass on the Enneagram Tarot. And sure enough, the Enneagram almost compels you to put the full card as a one, to put the magician as the helper caretaker, like number two, and then the high priestess is the achiever, number three. Uh, then number four, the individualist, strangely enough, has the empress and the emperor cards. I put them both in the four together. And that I think is maybe, there's a bit of a mystery because I came across the same pattern when I did the Marvel Avengers and rolling out the tarot cards. There was something really interesting about the three and the four being married. They were fused together. And so the Empress and the Emperor are fused together in the station of number four. And then you jump across to number five, the Thinker Observer is, a, this is kind of a fun one, but that's Observer is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he is the Hierophant card. And anybody who, most Hierophants are a pretty good fit, but what I started to see, what doing this, coming at from the Star Wars perspective, is that Star Wars is animating the Crowley Thoth tarot deck a little bit more than the Rider Waite or your other standard cards. A lot more, in fact. I think a whole lot more. So yeah, when Obi-Wan Kenobi, when he sees Princess Leia, her holographic projection where she says, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, that scene is so powerfully correspondent with the Hierophant card of the Crowley Thoth deck because the Hierophant has what looks like a blue holographic image of the Isis, of the goddess Isis being set in front of him. And so that one is just really, really a strong fit because it goes back to that scene. And in that scene, and this is where things get really astrological because I'm not only am I traveling through the tarot deck, I'm also going through the zodiac in my mind. And so I know that the Hierophant belongs in the sign of Taurus. And I happen to also know a lot of the characteristics in the heavenly dynamics that are rooted in the station of the sky station of Taurus. It is the location of the north node of the lunar standstill cycle. And what is really magical is the fact that in that scene, C-3PO asks to be shut down. Yeah, man, you got it. Yes. So the key in his hand, that is Obi-Wan, that in that scene is the first time Obi-Wan pulls out the lightsaber. So the key in his hand is like the lightsaber. In the C-3PO, he asks to be shut down. So his eyeballs turn off. The lights of his eyes turn off. And if you look at the, the, quatr the quatrimorph, the four characters, their little eyeballs are blanked out. Yep. It's, and then when he turns off, C-3PO is then lights up and illuminates extra and casts the broadcasts the image. I think that the, the whole scene is embodying the dynamics of an eclipse, which is in integral to Taurus. There is a lunar standstill, a special eclipse, not just any, 
like a very sacred eclipse with the 18.6 year cycle. And so as the sun, C-3PO, as he turns off, R2-D2 kicks on extra powerful and a broadcast is, is articulated in, in that moment. And so it just blows my mind the depth of revelation that a single scene can bring out of that one tarot card. And so it was just, it just, it's, it's like taking entertainment to another level because it's educational. You know what I mean? It's not just like fascinating and interesting and it's actually, I'm learning. I'm like, really learning like on a whole new level. So to think, you know, you, the next station is number six, a loyalist, which planetarily is Uranus. And so Uranus is much like twins. It's like Janus that has a face in either direction. And so that, that is the lover's card, which is Gemini, the twins. And that one is kind of, it's kind of complex, but I basically put a C-3PO and R2-D2, who are the moon and the sun card, I put them together as twins and they fuse, they come together as the number six, the loyalists, which in the Greek pantheon, that is Apollo and Artemis. Well, Apollo has a golden bow and Artemis has a silver bow. C-3PO is, is golden robot and R2 is a silver robot. So all of this layers and layers of revelation, it's really fun, but it is proving itself. It's like, you know, you can test it against something and it comes back with confirmation in, in just a really wild, far out way. And then number, se uh, number seven, because we're the twins card is number six card. We go up to number seven card is the chariot card. And so the enthusiast or the epicure is the chariot card which is Cancer, and it has correspondence with Jupiter, which I just learned the other night. It's, it's really cool how you like have a theory and then you find something out that just locks it even more into place. So yeah, finding out that the chariot card number seven fits into station number seven of the Enneagram with Jupiter from the Greek pantheon, it's just blowing my mind. The, you know, It's like what Ross Ben always says. I love this quote. He says, consistency is the hallmark of truth. And that has been like, that's been my guiding light through mm. this whole project. Yeah. And so, they, and so then we go up to number eight with the Saturnian Martian there, the leader of the challenger. And that is Darth Vader. Darth Vader is the death card also, but in the Crowley Thoth deck, the number eight card is the lust card, right? Well, it's actually, no, to be technical, it gets tricky here. You know about the switch, that he switched the lust card and the justice card mm. in his deck. And so it does get tricky, but I would say that the number eight in episode one of Star Wars is Darth Vader at first. But as we go into Empire Strikes Back, Boba Fett fits into that position. And if you look at the justice card and you look at Boba Fett, it's like... It's like they just made a caricature of the Justice card and embodied it in the character we were all entertained by as children as Boba Fett. So mm -hmm. the colors match. He's even got a sword, a little sword thing on his shoulder that matches the Justice card is holding a sword. So yeah, the number eight position is at first it's the challenger of the whole series is Darth Vader fundamentally. But in the second episode, it changes. They get another, they get a new antagonist 
which becomes Boba Fett. And then it was, I really love the peacemaker of the whole Star Wars thing is a card number nine is the Virgo card. And that is Yoda. And Yoda is the hermit. He is the most removed. He's the most recluse of all the characters living on his own on Dagobah. And he is the peacemaker. He is the mediator. And he even teaches Luke to meditate, you know, to come into peacefulness and to calm his mind, to be still. And so, yeah, and also to balance. That's another synonym for the number nine personality type is balance. And Luke is literally balancing on one hand during his training session. So that is just kind of a walkthrough on my revelations of the tarot cards through the Enneagram as seen through Star Wars metaphorically. Yeah, and I definitely want to leave it there so people can go and follow up and learn more from you on your channel and from the show you and Juan are putting together. And yeah, it's fascinating Marvel, not so much. Actually, Marvel and Star Wars were both a big part of my like upbringing, things that I was fascinated with. I don't know, ever since I started smoking weed, I like all of that stuff kind of like faded. Like I don't remember as much of it as I should, but, but it, it, you're bringing a lot of stuff back just through talking about this. And, and you did as well when we spoke about the Marvel connections. And I, I've heard John shows talking about that. It's interesting, you know, one thing that the mainstream often gives a hint at in, in, the ter in terms of George Lucas and his creative sort of mind and how he came up with Star Wars was Joseph Campbell and this, what's the Epsil Esalon Center that he gave all these lectures at, and he wrote a bunch of books and, you know, described sort of all of the themes through human myth and, and how... You know, we're, we're, we could see psychological truths in them. Apparently, this was a huge inspiration to George Lucas. And, you know, if he was equipped with all that, then we can't underestimate that him and, and suggest he wouldn't have known about the tarot and he wouldn't have known about uh, astrology. I mean, it's silly to think he wouldn't know because all of that stuff is embedded in myth as well. So, yeah. I think really what you're doing is is showing people maybe what was waiting there to be found, like an Easter egg, so to speak, but more than that, you know, because Easter egg is just sort of like a, a little like one off. Like what what we're talking about is like the the gnosis within the art, you know, because that's what makes art palatable and, and, and potent is is when there's you know, some sort of vision to it, a message, a creative expression of something that's intangible. And you're like a, you're like a detective slick. You're going through this stuff <laughs> with your magnifying glass and you're pointing it out, man. Consistency is definitely evident in, in what you're showing us. So you know what I'm interested in with my show, Esoteric America. It's pretty pronounced. I'm really curious to know, you know, where the connection point is forged between a state and a tarot card or a state and a astrological sign. I understand that we could use like the date of a state's founding to determine its birth date, right? Companies do this. Obviously, human beings do this. So 
I get that, but where do you where do you look when you're trying to find the connection between like a state or region and a, and a tarot card archetype? Yes. All right. Well, I have a very specific way that I lay my zodiac out. And a lot of people who are into astronomy or reading people's birth charts, they actually have they they would say that my zodiac is flipped. And I would say that their zodiac is flipped. But, you know, I think that they are actually looking up at their stars where I'm looking down. And that's part of the flip, uh, which is that is actually rotas is is baked into the Wheel of Fortune card, which means to rotate. And so one thing that I've learned, that is that's instructions for us to be capable of doing inversions in our mind, you know, that we should have a, a good, strong imagination so we can we can see things going in both directions. So my zodiac is has a the equinox is the horizon line. I think of it as a water line even. And the summer months, beginning with the summer months are the top half of my wheel, going from Aries all the way around to Virgo. And then it hits that dividing line again, or I think of it as going underwater, going into the shadow, the darkness of the underworld. And so Libra is the beginning. Once you go past the fall equinox, I see my zodiac dipping down below, going from Libra all the way through to Pisces, where it comes to the spring equinox and breaks back to the other half of the wheel. And so I hold that equinox line and I place it very firmly on Mason-Dixon line. And so the Mason-Dixon line is my dividing line, uh, horizontally speaking. And then the next thing that you need for coordinates, we're getting our X and Y axis here, right? And the next thing you know, need is the solstice, which is the vertical axis. I guess that would be the, is that the X? No, that's the Y. I think, yeah, I think that's the Y axis we're establishing. And I just put that very solidly on the Mississippi River. And so if you use the 37th degree Mason-Dixon line as your equinoxes, and the Mississippi is a, because it's squiggly, but as a general a solstice line, then you have a complete grid system of the United States. And from there, I just place, let me see if I can get a graphic to you. Here we go. And what's interesting, so the 37th degree parallel is very supercharged with, with places because it also is the dividing line of the Strait of Gibraltar. It goes right through all of the Mediterranean there. In the Strait of Gibraltar was a very sacred location. You know, they, to have control of that strait was uh, was basically to have control of the you know the trade routes in a very very powerful. So yeah, the thirty seventh degree cutoff line is has been militarily and probably psychologically for for prehistory even. So I sent you that graphic. And I, there is a misspelling. You guys can probably find it on your own. I'm not going to harp on that. <laughs> oh no, I can't. I can't even tell. No big deal. So yeah, we we see it now. It's up on the screen. Oh, I, I I'm cutting off a, a little bit of it. Let me fix it. But yeah, it's all here. So tell me, the place that I'm in. I mean, I'm kind of close to New York City, so we could just do general. But this would be, would you say, like a pie chart? So everything sort of from that center point 
outward would be like a sort of sliver tri equal out isosceles triangle, right? So is that what we're looking at here, or is it is it more you know the states that are directly over the underneath those signs are affected? Like what? Yeah, is that kind right. of? Yeah, I see it. I see it as let me think tropical, a tropical segmenting. So it'll be an even thirty degrees per station. Mm, okay. And you will notice that because there are twenty-two cards of the major arc that doesn't break up, it doesn't divide evenly, and that the summer months of Cancer, Leo, and Virgo, that they only get a single tarot card for each of them. And that was just going off of an early tarot deck that I had. I was just adhering to the sequence of the cards, going in numerical order, and just basically placing them in their corresponding zodiacal spot. And there's a couple gaps, but the gaps, you just fill them by adhering to the numerical flow of things. And so by doing that, the summer months only yielded a single tarot card. And I would think to myself, you know, why is that? What is it telling me? Well, you know, I'm trying to intuit why there's only a single station and those three and the rest of them get doubled. And it actually comes to me maybe a month into the project. I realized summer nights are short. The summer, the evening, the, the stage of the heavens is abbreviated in the summer. And so it's, it has less of an articulation of the dynamics of the heavens. And that was really rewarding to me to be like, there is a very good reason for those cards to only have a single tarot card and the rest to have two. And so then I, I look 180 degrees in the opposite quadrant of the, of the tarot deck. And it actually solved a mystery for me to know that if the summer months have shorter nights, then when I look down in the opposite down in Aquarius, it really fulfills a bit of a, a quandary I had. It was a, a kind of a blip in the flow because in the tarot cards, the high priestess in Capricorn, which is in Louisiana, the high priestess is card number two. And card number three is the Empress card, which I would think would fall into Aquarius here in Texas, but it wasn't a good fit. It just wasn't a good fit. I had to skip Aquarius and go over to Pisces to place the Empress in, in the Pisces station, which is a great fit for Southern California and also Hawaii. So what I think happens here, we are skipping Aquarius early in the flow because I think because the nights are longer, the nights are deeper, it's darker, there's more depth to it. And I think of this station of Aquarius, we are in the age of Aquarius right now, which is really fascinating. But I think what that is telling us is that as an early initiate, you have to cross over the void. You have to overlook a lot of what you didn't understand in the beginning, which is literally what I was doing when I filled out this graphic. I was like, I don't know why, but I have to skip this station because it fits better as a three. And I just don't know why. I just got to take, take the information by face value. And it was months later that I had the more more context to answer my the, my own question and see a deeper meaning so what that tells me is you actually have to go around the zodiac one time and it's your second time around your saturn returns when you have more more wisdom from experience 
that the Aquarius station there is cards number 16 and 17. They both stack into Aquarius in a fascinating way. And so when what seemed like a flaw in the beginning just required more depth of knowledge, like the darkness of night, like the Saturn returns of your life, uh, to realize that it's like crossing the void, Mm -hmm. which I think is part of some of the initiation rites. Like if we were in a secret society, you know, the, the, whatever, the master of ceremonies, he'd have me uh, walking over some sort of bridge right there. And I wouldn't know why until I became the master of ceremonies and I would know the secret of why we skipped the tower and the star card until later in the path. Mm. Mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> huh. I, I may so, need, yeah, go ahead. Well, so Dallas is the star, the Lone Star State. Mm. And so the star card is a really good fit. You got the Dallas Cowboys rocking the star on their helmet. Mm-hmm. You know, so many things star oriented there in Texas. Wasn't somebody like the first ma- public mass shooting, like a, a shooter from a high tower? Wasn't that in Texas? Or am I thinking of somewhere else? You're right, buddy. I think you're right. Yep. Tower card. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? I. I have some graphics on that. I did a weave on that. There is a strange thing about, oh, you guys were just talking about it on Exertus' show mm, the other Wednesday day. Ultra. With, with Ari, the thing about the, the tripod invaders mm, okay. from War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. that is instilling an archetypal fear of, of the towers. Wow. And so the, the tripod walkers and a sniper up on a water tower is all using psychological levers to keep people terrified of towers. And so the War of the Worlds thing, the shooter, also obviously the Twin Towers, you know, keeping us afraid of towers. But what what is also very interesting about the water tower and the tripod monsters is that on Cape Canaveral, where they launch all those rockets, there's a the Jack Parsons water tower which I think they've changed the label a few times on that water tower, but the water tower is always iconically depicted next to the launching pad on Cape Canaveral. It's just passively sitting in almost in many, many, many of the image searches. You'll see the a launching pad for the rocket going to the stars, and then next to it is the water tower. And I see it as an iconic whisper back to the original hoax of War of the Worlds. And it might be the big reveal that it's all a hoax. Mm. Yeah, those water towers <laughs> do kind of look like tripods. Some of them, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great good good call on the the tower shooter. I forget uh-huh. about that one. That's a really good one in Texas there. Mm. So that's that's a one of many, I assume, examples of sort of symmetry here. Do you have any yeah. others that you can elaborate on? I just spent some time on my show, Esoteric America, talking about Wisconsin and all the weirdness up there. Do you have anything to say about the, the chariot card or the Gemini card up in the Chicago, Minnesota, Wisconsin area? Big time, yes. Oftentimes, my, some of my favorite examples and the most widely recognized are sports teams. So we have the Minnesota Twins. Mm. it's even home <laughs> yeah yep it's it's also jim menai soda mm. 
Jim Menai. So right, that, right, right. Yeah. And there, I think there are the Twin Cities also where yep, some of yep. the... The Twin yeah. Cities are up there. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. <laughs> yes. So what is really fun is I love cancer is one of my favorite ones because cancer is the, yeah, the station of the crab and is... A, a big fucking crab's claw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's like a little mitten or a claw. Yeah, for yep. sure. And also the Gemini, the Twin Cities, is sort of uh, right at the top of the, the Y-axis, sort of split down the middle by the river, right? So we have the Geminis, right. you know, standing strong on both sides of the these there. That's a great point. Yes, yes. Another really good one with that chariot card of cancer is Detroit is Motor City. Mm. That's where the chariots were made. Wow, yeah, yeah. And and also in more internal from there is Indy 500 of Indianapolis is also under the sign of the chariot there mm. or the cancer. Another one uh, that, that strikes me is Ohio right next to the strength card and the Leo. Ohio is like, you know, big war state. I mean, they've have a lot of presidents and generals that have come from Ohio, a lot of mm -hmm. like winning football teams in Ohio that like, you know, kick a lot of ass and, you know, like to brag about mm -hmm. it. And then also New York too is kind of like the empire state, right? The Royal lion, the empire, you know, they all kind of blend together there. And then new so, England too is right on the other side of that. You got it, man. Yes. I think of the Cincinnati Bengals. Mm. It's an it's a tiger, not a lion, but it is a tiger. You right. know, it's it's very close. Well, the Detroit Lions too. That's not Detroit's not that far from Ohio as well. Right, and in a lot of chariot cards, the chariot is being led by two sphinxes. Mm. Wow. And, yeah. And so the Detroit Lions, I think of them as sphinxes drawing the chariot, Damn. and so. You know, maybe when we do the, if we do Esoteric America, I'll actually bring some of my, uh, I've actually amalgamated actual tarot cards mm -hmm. with state seals, state logos, oh, wow. and it uh, really comes forward through the tarot cards when you when you cut and paste some of the images and icons. It's, a, it's kind of a feast for the eyes. I love that. But, yeah. that let's, let's plan on that. I think this is a good yeah. place to to put this down and, and we'll revisit it on esoteric America because you know, you, you've put a lot of work together and I really appreciate you coming here to sort of give us the, you know, the sort of watered down version, but the real meat and potatoes are on your channel with your videos. So tell the audience where they can go to support you and, and follow up with all this information they learned about today. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm on a uh, slick dissident on the YouTube. Haven't really worked out any way to get support just yet. Just when I was getting geared up for, you know, some kind of PayPal thing, they ended up pulling the Plata o Plomo maneuver on us where they pay up pal. Right. With the, with the thought police. That's, that was pretty revealing. I got a whole weave on that. You know, that's a PP PayPal. That's Plata o Plomo. Mm. It's uh, silver or lead. Oh, okay. It's, it's an it's an ultimatum. Yeah. And what's really what's really fascinating is it was baked into their name all the time, all along. And now that the mask is off, <laughs> they're revealing that it was yeah, that this could have been planned all along. Who knows? I walk that line again. Is it is it is it mystical or is it man made? I I'm always in both of those worlds. 
So yeah, YouTube, Slick Dissident. And then I also, I get down with the Weaving Spiders webs on Saturday nights. We go all night, late, late, late. And then we also do a show sometimes on Wednesdays. We do a flow state where we read and do art is another another event with the spiders. And then I'm also with Chance Garten over on the Interverse podcast on Rockfin. It's a great place to get that. And uh, I've been on with Juan a whole lot lately. We're having a lot of fun over on the Juan on Juan podcast. So that's another one to definitely come and get a taste. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. There's so much content out there these days. And I'm glad to see you on all these shows with Chance, with Juan, spreading the good word. It's about time we had you back here. Long overdue. And I, I hope to have you on Esoteric America soon because it's about time we put out a new show for <laughs> for for that one. But yeah, man, really interesting stuff as always. I'm always really, you know, a little bit amazed at all of the connections, you know? I mean, it, it's 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 hard to dismiss when you see them all stacked up together. So Slick, thank you so much for your time. Everybody listening, please go and support this man on YouTube. If you get enough subscribers, YouTube will start to pay you. So support him there. Like, subscribe, hit that notification button. Maybe set up a, a Venmo and send Slick some money through Venmo because, you know, this... This work you're putting together it deserves to be supported. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to just do this for free like a martyr. But here we are <laughs> in the 21st century, digital martyrs. Thank you for listening, folks, and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is, our second conversation here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Slick Dissident, a.k.a. Gabe. He also joined me and Michael Wan on our podcast, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can find that show on the Susquehanna Alchemy feed, but be sure to go over to YouTube and subscribe to Slick's channel. I believe it. Could find it just by searching slick dissident let's go ahead and try it right now live here we go all right yes it is slick dissident so go over there subscribe he's got a bunch of really interesting content obviously this episode had uh some visuals but if you uh prefer to well you've already listened to it if you're here in the outro so <laughs> but i i should have put the episode uh, photos, the relevant photos and graphs that Gabe was talking about in the uh, Telegram, so you can find them there if you want to know what we were looking at during this conversation. You could also find those on Gabe's channel, I'm sure. Uh, I also have a new episode with Midnight Mike, host of the Our Big Dumb Mouth podcast. It's available on Rockfin and very soon Patreon. Uh, you could support us on either of those platforms. I do appreciate people who send tips via Rockfin. Shout out to everyone who sent us a tip, uh, everyone who subscribed. And of course, my Patreon people, thank you so much for being subscribed. We're going to start doing something monthly, I promise. We've done a few things in the past, but not consistently. But we will do a monthly meetup in 2023. We're almost there. So look forward to that. Sign up on the Patreon now to get involved with that. 
And yeah, support us on Ko-Fi, Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. The holiday season is coming, and I could use all the help I can get. We've got a PayPal, but you know, PayPal's been a little weird lately, so try Cash App or Venmo if you can. Uh, you could sign up on Ko-Fi, or you could sign up on Patreon. You can also check out the latest Synchro Mystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now article in the Ko-Fi store. And you can also sign up for the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue, a conversation between myself and you, however long you would like to spend. And uh, yeah, another great way to support the show is to check out our sponsor, the Hit Kit. The Hit Kit is a great way to store whatever you're smoking on. You fold it all in there, safe and sound, and they've got some really cool designs. A couple of mine have uh, hermetic-themed designs, one with uh, Hermes Trismegistus, another one has the seven hermetic laws. The other one has a frog playing a banjo, and that one's my favorite because it's got a lighter built into it. So you can slide it to the left and take out your joints. You got two sort of cartridges for joints here. And then you could slide it back into place and light it up. It's great. Great little gadget here. Go and check that out. Hitkit.us. You can find them on Instagram at the Hitkit. And that's it, folks. Cultivate your psychic life. You're already doing a great service for yourself by tuning in to this broadcast. So I appreciate you. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving and Hope you have a great moment wherever you are in the now. Peace. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. Questioning everything. I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war of the Pleiadians and Anunnaki. Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal. Universe within me, epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya. Subliminal messages hijack your perception, tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad, forever meditating on the concept of God. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I am walking a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls they highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I 
dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, it's no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade